This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas. First published in, I want to say, 1857. Is that right? Yeah, 1857 in French. And then translated into English in 1904. And then later in 1950. And serialized in Weird Tales uh, between August uh, 1931 and March 1932. And uh, I was madly scrambling to find my copy of Weird Tales that come out after that to see what people uh if you read the weird tales letters page which is called the eerie as in where eagles go (laughs) (laughs) Uh, if you read the weird tales letters column people are unreserved about their opinions generally uh slamming things and praising things so uh (laughs) this is from the i guess two issues after the final installment of the serial Somebody just had an airplane go by. Yeah, okay. sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know right. what just drove by, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounded like an airplane. Um, so this is uh, from June 1932. Leonard Gahogan of London, England, expresses the prevailing view in the letter to the Erie. Quote, The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas was a thrilling and fascinating story, he writes. Quote, And Weird Tales deserves my heartiest thanks for re- reprinting it. But Dracula is another matter, for most lovers of weird fiction are already acquainted with that novel. I say, if you can offer us any more weird novels, such as The Weird, uh, the Wolf Leader, which we cannot obtain at bookstores, then by all means print them as weird story reprints. But thumbs down on Dracula and others of that ilk, for we have already read them. <laughs> thumbs down on Dracula. Wow. Well, took, took uh, yeah, it's not quite as what it seems. Um, basically, it's... It, they were asking, do you want us to reprint, uh, you know, stuff? And, of course, Dracula was very available. But this was um, the, probably the easiest way to read it in English was in Weird Tales uh, for this particular story. And they, they did Frankenstein as a serial and a bunch of other things. Um, this doesn't feel very much like a Weird Tales story to me, though. Um, I've read a lot of Weird Tales stories and this one feels a lot more not <laughs> weird talesy but technically it is it just doesn't feel that way what was everyone else's reaction why, uh, why does it not feel weird tales um probably because of the religious uh and sort of um i don't know technical aspects of the the war werewolfery I kind of feel it's more like folk tale or fairy tale. Or definitely, right? definitely. You know, mm. with the devil, that sort of that sort of uh, story rather than supernatural, really. Right. I mean, I mean, this is more Daniel and De- the Daniel, the devil and Daniel Webster sort of thing. Yeah, it's just taking a couple notches up. Yeah. Um, Mr. Jim Moon, you did a massive series on uh, werewolfery. I hope that there will be another installment at some point. 
Um, eventually, eventually. Uh, good, good. Um, <laughs> were you aware of this book? Because it's it it's, it certainly breaks and uh, fits a lot of the conventions of werewolf uh, lore. Uh, well, when I did the series originally, that was quite a few years ago, I did come across this, and uh, I did have a quick skim read, and I kind of thought, kind of, well, it's it's more. It reminds me of a Faust story. Absolutely. And it has wolves mm. in it, but he isn't what most people would recognize as a werewolf no. uh, for most of the story. It's kind of werewolf-free is given lip service. Right. <laughs> um, and while I think the um, the kind of frame we have at the start of the story is really sort of folk horror and that's where you get the, your meat of tale of this man who's lived for you know god knows how long and he takes the form of a big black wolf that that's your werewolfism there but once you get into uh, his own actual life story um after he's made his deal with the devil i found it was in danger of descending into kind of a romantic farce of oh there is a lot his, of farce yeah he tries to get his way with various women and, and uh, every time his wishes backfire uh, <laughs> It has a, it it has a pretty uh, solid ending, though, I think. Oh, yeah, I think it comes back. It's just in, I found just in the middle, my interest didn't begin to wane, but it was kind of... I was thinking, hang on, this is a guy who made the deal with the devil. He's supposed to be this, you know, notorious villain, and he's um, just trying to get his leg over, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was reading it, and I was like, oh, it's like a folk story about an incel. Like he's just yeah, like, I, that's exactly, exactly. I was thinking about incels as I was listening to this too. Oh six weeks, I don't think anybody's going to be talking about that word anymore. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, uh, yes, in, uh, involuntary celibate, uh, yeah. dude. Well, uh, and just blaming the world for it. Yeah. Well, I mean. I think what's so interesting is I was I was reading a lot of the Wikipedia entries for Dumas and his father and his his whole lineage actually because there are a lot of people in that family because of how uh, uh, prolific I guess that's a nice polite way of putting it <laughs> the 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 men in that family <laughs> were the Dumas men. Um, Mysa, you you have read uh, the great book that I've never read that uh, I think... The Count of Monte Cristo. There you go. The Count of Monte Cristo in the full unexpurgated version. Is that right? I did, yes. It's fantastic. One, It's one of my top books. Yeah, so I, 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 I think it was a fairly easy sale to get you to read this with us. <laughs> It was. Uh, did you um, did you do any research on on Dumas in the process of uh, I, reading? Well, I read. I did. I re- probably read all the Wikipedia things that you read. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Uh. And and uh, and I was I was surprised by his background. I had actually no idea um, uh, uh, where he came from. I, I thought he was a typical French aristocrat, actually, from from what I've read of his stories. And his background came as a total surprise. Yeah. Made, made him so much more interesting, actually. He's a very interesting fellow, isn't he? Has, mm-hmm. has anyone else read Tom Rice's The Black Count? I just started it because I started getting the same thing. I started researching him and being like, oh, wait, what? His father yeah. was who? And was so I just grabbed it from the library and started it. Yeah, I had read it a couple of years ago. I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea Dumas's father was from Haiti. And so – and this general in France and arrival in the pole, like what the heck? Why did I ever yeah. learn this anywhere? 
Yeah. Actually, Why isn't this in the it, back cover anywhere? Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Um, now, technically, his father's not from uh, from. Oh yes, his father. Yes. Okay. So there's a bunch of Alexander Dumas as well. So the the one that we're reading is is usually referred to as Alexander Dumas père, as in the dad. And then right. there's um, the son who's a um, playwright more than a, a serial novelist. And then the the grandfather, uh, no, the father of Dumas was, okay, am I getting this right? The father, Dumas' father was the general who we we actually read quite a bit about in the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. um, in the introduction, and he was married to his slave uh, from Haiti. He was mm-hmm. an aristocrat. Am I getting this right, or is this this mm-hmm. is two generations ago? Okay. He's I think a, that was right. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Alexandre Dumas is the general. His son is Alexandre Dumas. Right. Yeah. So um, the general... And, and so he's the grandfather of the playwright, Alexandre Dumas. Yes, the... So it goes Alexandre general... Alexandre Dumas père. Uh, yeah, uh, Phil, so, Phil is the son. Yeah. So we have general, novelist, mm-hmm. playwright. Right. So... Um, his his this is really interesting. I I went back and re-listened to the beginning of the book, um, because I I don't know I, when I, it's a good book and you're enjoying it, another chance to pass through you know is kind of fun. Um, so I was I was re-listening to the beginning of the book and I noted there's this uh, brief description of everybody in the household, um, and there's one woman Dumas can't remember very well. Um, her name is Marie. You guys remember this part? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Is that the she was like the cook or something, or the well, he doesn't remember exactly. <laughs> he, it's so he was so young when he he uh, I guess didn't see her. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's I believe that's his grandmother. Because he, the his black slave Haitian grandmother. Um, because although that's not her name, that's what they called her. Uh, yeah, so oh, right. Marie Cassette, Cassette Dumas, um, and she she was taken at age 14 to France, um, and then uh, basically, I don't want to go too deep into this, but basically what it seems like is that Dumas' whole career, writing career, is just writing about his father. Yeah, <laughs> right? seems like it. That that makes sense. I mean, did you, uh, Mar- 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 did you note um, how the Count of Monte Cristo has a background in history? Um, at the time that I read it, it was like, yeah, it was in the it was in the back yes of my of my brain. Okay, but I well, wasn't I wasn't paying that close attention. Okay, so I, I'll just I'll just re- recount the story as best I, I remember reading it. And basically, his father um, Thomas Alexandre David de la Patrie, whatever. <laughs> um, very good. <laughs> born in in, in Haiti, um, his um, his father was the general, and he was a general during the uh, revolution. He was also a general after the revolution, and one of, um, eventually is the highest ranking uh, person of color, uh, I guess is the word for it, um, in all of Europe uh, until like the 21st century, I think. But he, um, 
he at one point has a falling out with Napoleon, who he had been one of the great generals for. And Napoleon had a line, it goes something like this, uh, I don't want the, the skilled generals, I want the lucky generals. The, the officers who were very lucky when other officers say, oh, that's just luck. He, he lucked out into it, right? <laughs> he wants the ones like him who just managed to somehow luck their way into winning every battle. So uh, the father um, has a falling out with Napoleon after um, a battle in um, Egypt when Napoleon's take, conquering Egypt. And that battle, by the way... Um, 20,000 Napoleonic troops against 25,000, I think, Mameluke uh, troops. Um, the Mamelukes, 20,000 killed, um, and I think 26 French troops killed. Huge, yeah, yeah. massive yeah. disparity, right? <laughs> like, just total wipeout. And then uh, Dumas' father has a falling out with, with um, Napoleon and uh, is sent home on a shitty bark. Uh, crappy boat and on his way home he has to stop in uh, Sicily I think it is or maybe maybe it's Malta maybe it's Malta and then is um, imprisoned Uh, Alexander um, Dumas style as in Count of Monte Cristo style really I didn't read any of this isn't that fascinating and imprisoned in a way he was like blamed for something from jealous comrades or something or jealous friends was that right it could be it could be uh, i think it's i think him and his son always thought that it was like a false imprisonment you know like that it was someone jealous had wow had made him end up in there well but i haven't read hence, the story hence yet, revenge right <laughs> hence the, yeah the revenge story yeah i think that's what the author says um somewhere that the count of monte cristo is like a, a literal revenge story of him imagining his father's revenge yeah and, That's so cool. And we see a lot of the father in here, especially at the, uh, I, I guess it, at the beginning, um, entirely at the beginning. But his father, um, he listens to the servant, the guy with the, uh, the teeth missing and the uh, the McKay. pipe. McKay. McKay. Yeah. So he's a great character, and I, I think <laughs> this is all. I think I, I must assume that this that part is all pretty much true. Like all of the things that happened in the conversation. I hope so. Like. I would be so happy to know that there was once a dude who walked around talking about traps and <laughs> wily beasts. Yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> and wily beasts. Yeah. <laughs> Not wild beasts, wily beasts. That's a good translation. I assume that that's all uh, in the original and it's just been well translated. I thought the translation was pretty damn good. I don't, mm. I don't. I don't. I don't have the French to really compare, or the knowledge of French to actually compare it to actually know if it was any good or not, or how much was invention. It, it was. It was a. It was a good Dumas book. Is how well was it translated from the original? I can't say, but it fer- felt very much in line with the the shortened version of the Count of Monte Cristo that I read. I haven't read the full version. I've only read like basically a high school condensed well, version. Yeah. And of course, I've seen all the seen the movie, of course, and stuff. Well, it flowed beautifully. Like it didn't it didn't feel stilted at all, or 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 you know slightly broken. It was really well done. Mm-hmm. I think this is. I think the version we listen to is the uh, unabridged version. There is a later 1950 version that um, gets trimmed. I think Fritz Leiber did the translation for that. 
Um, and I can see why they would want to trim, especially some of the middle stuff. But I, I think the story works incredibly well because of the introduction and, and how just... We know, we, we have Alexander Dumas narrating it for us as he tells this sort of fictionalized account of a folktale that I think right. he really actually heard. This hmm. is really that weird little moment where he breaks through into the story and um, is telling us that here's the reason why I chose this particular person as the hero. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, thank you for the explanation. Yeah, meta com- commentary. I was surprised at first. It's like, when did we actually get to the real story? Right. I mean, I I, I eventually under- understood the framing device and accepted the framing device, but it threw me off at first. It's like, wait, so Dumas is going to meet the werewolf? Wait, what? Uh, and then and then it was like, oh, okay, this is just a story he's being told in the course in course of this adventure. Like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That. So, yes, so he's basically yeah, playing storyteller for us. And right. But he did shoot the werewolf, he thinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did he? Well, I, I think the ending is terrific. I mean, one of the things that happens at the end, right, is that we're told uh, that their dogs are fighting over a wolf skin. Mm. Um, not a, a wolf corpse. It's very distinct, right? Um, and that really ties in to uh, the, at least one of the different legends of how werewolves work, right? Mr. Jimmon, can you outline the three, I think it's three ways you can b- become a werewolf? Uh, well, you can be cursed by God right, or the devil, and that is you actually are transformed into a wolf sort of permanently. Um, and that's certainly the case in a lot of things we now get classed as werewolf legends but i would say they're, they're probably not really because you don't have that back and forth uh there's an arthurian uh, knight who was uh, cursed and lived as a wolf for so many years and things like that mm-hmm. uh the second way is um is magic and witchcraft a deal with the devil like in here mm-hmm. and um quite often uh in you're so authentic old stories this does involve people actually having a magical wolf skill which the skin which they don mm-hmm. and that actually mm. aids the transformation oh, or yeah. it is also more gruesomely it was said a werewolf possessed two skins and uh, literally they turned their skin inside out and the outer skin is human and the inside is furry and a wolf skin mm-hmm. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> okay <laughs> And that's that's two of the ways. And the third way is the more uh, American werewolf it's, London way. Right? Yeah, there's, it's the one we, uh, we all know. You, you, you're bitten by a werewolf. Or actually, in old folk tales, you're bitten by a wolf and um, you become wolfish as a consequence, which when you read it now, you can see those that particular strand of werewolfism comes from people getting rabies. Right. Ah. And going yeah. rabid. Um I guess there's a technically a, a kind of a fourth way, which is um, maybe a lot like the third in a, cer- in a certain sense. That is um, basically like in the, Vol- the saga of the Volsungs, right? The Volsunga saga, when you are outlawed, you become a quote-unquote wolf's head, right? Anybody can kill you uh, without punishment by law. Um, in fact, they get rewarded for killing you because wolves are to be hunted um you basically just turn on your fellow man and become a bandit and and so 
you know, huddling under a wolf skin, uh, like to keep warm, turns you rabid, turns you mad, turns you against your fellow mankind. And we see a lot of that in here as well. I think with Tibold becoming, uh, you know, he has a flaw, a fatal flaw at the beginning, but it's subtle and he's got quite a mouth on him. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, by the end with the tears and the uh, a kind of quasi redemption, um, it's, I, I get the sense that he escaped death at the end. Am I wrong? You think he escaped death? I think so. I I didn't think so until I went back and read the start again and um, saw that Alexandra thought he was shooting Tebow. Right. Yeah. Because when I read the end, I thought it was actually a much more horrific end. I thought that for a moment that he had swapped his life for um, the girls. I can't right, remember her name, right. Agnelletta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I was imagining her now waking up in her coffin and being buried alive forever, awake. Ah! <laughs> Yikes. So now she's a zombie and he's gone. Well, that's, that's how I read the end. <laughs> but I don't think that's what he meant. Well, I'll just bring up the ending here and see what we get. Yeah. If it's, It uh... seems like he swaps his life for hers. So I thought she was either going to wake up or... She's alive in there somewhere. So here's. I thought that she was saved, which I didn't understand why, because she was already saved. But, um, but I, I like her soul was saved. You mean her soul was? Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. I guess he he is still a wolf then. Um. So how here's here's how it goes. Hello, hello, hello! Cried the Lord of Vez. In a voice of thunder as he leapt from his horse, not caring if there was any one or not to look after it. And drawing out his hunting knife, he d- dashed towards the vault, forcing his way through the hounds. He found them fighting over a fresh and bleeding wolf skin, but the body had disappeared. There was no mistake, as its being the skin of a wolf, werewolf, that they had been hunting. For with the exception of one white hair, it was entirely black. What had become of the body? <laughs> I just love that quote. It's back to Dumas, right? No one ever yep. knew. Only as from this time forth, Tibald was never seen again. It was generally believed that the former sabot maker and no other was the werewolf. Furthermore, as the skin had been found without the body, and as from the spot where it was found, a peasant reported to have heard someone speak the words, Oh God, take my life, I give it gladly, if only by my death I may give back life to her whom I have killed. The priest declared openly that Tibold, by reason of his sacrifice and repentance, had been saved. Like, bodily taken up to heaven? What's going on here? Uh, maybe that's the translation. Maybe there's a translation error there. Like, maybe in the original it is the soul that is saved. I don't I, I think he's trying to leave it ambiguous. But um, here's... Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Which, because that's how I took it, that he would... And then I thought, well, how fair is that? Like, how, how can he be saved after everything mm-hmm. he did? Yeah, it's kind of a neat. Yeah, um, yeah, but what about that? What about that's that very Catholic, sentence? though, right? He's got one hair. He has yeah. got one hair, but. Yeah, but <laughs> what, what about the, the next sentence? And what, what added to the consistency of belief in this tradition was that every year on the anniversary of Angoletta's death, up to the time when the monasteries were all abolished at the revolution, a monk from the abbey of the Christmas. 
Montestrians at Borgfontein, which sent half a week from Precamont, was seen to come and pray beside her grave. I thought that's the oh, monk. Is that Thibault? That's Thibault, right? He became. Yeah, that's Thibault. He became. Right. Uh, he 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 was granted his wish, and became a monk, and instead of a, a sex hound, right? <laughs> yeah. So 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 so, so yeah. So he gave up his he gave up his body and soul to God and became a monk, and so every year came to pray at at her grave, and she went to heaven because you know he made that final sacrifice, and that final sacrifice saved him from hell. Because he used his last wish to do good rather than doing the evil that he had been slipping into right. for most of the book. Okay, so I, I think like we've that. yeah we've summarized the book. So it's basically <laughs> Incel Six Hound becomes a monk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, he learned his lesson, you know. He finally felt a tear for all the horrors that he committed. I think. He he has so much fun in his journey. We don't begrudge him. <laughs> I don't begrudge him much of his horror. Well, uh, he, he, people are so mean to him as well. Like there are definitely moments where you feel so sorry for him. Like when his his precious cup gets smashed, I felt that was really sad. I <laughs> know oh, he was he was an interesting character because he was a jerk. But you felt sorry yeah. for him, and you kind of were rooting for him, and like, and you're not rooting for him. Yeah, <laughs> it takes a while for the for the horror of what he's doing to actually sink in. For as Jim had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, for a lot of this book, it's really just farce. Like every, everything he tries to try to get into the bed with a woman, go the wishes go, and to, to traditional folklore of making deals with the devil, they all go horribly wrong again and again and again. He winds up in worse and worse predicaments and it it's funny to watch to watch him just like flounder around although as we mentioned the whole the insult thing it's kind of cringing nowadays but it's, it's like i mean it's almost like benny hill with werewolves it is it's like <laughs> have you read restoration plays no They're yes, no. yes. Mm. this is what it feels like like what they're are, all they're all they? sex farces those plays ah all like this like everybody's just you, you know well there's a lot of sex but but there's a lot of like wrong place wrong time farce uh, a lot of hiding uh, behind curtains yeah yeah, yeah. and people and people of different classes um getting it on or trying to get it on as well right right <laughs> well it's it sells right <laughs> it's uh it's fun stuff did anybody notice there was a math problem here no um he said that the the his 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 deal with the devil was um, for the fulfillment of your first wish one hair two hairs for the second four for the third and so on. I counted that. Uh-huh. That's seventeen. <laughs> that's seventeen wishes. Uh, wait, wasn't there so, there was something about a math problem, but wasn't it exponential? It, oh, it, it, they mentioned the um the old thing of the grains the grains, oh, grains of wheat on, on the a chessboard. Chessboard. Right, oh, that's a very yeah. ancient. Uh, problem but what, what is it can you tell me oh okay so 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 so, so the story the story goes that a that a uh, a persian or arabic ruler wanted to give his vizier a present because the vizier has done great and the vizier said oh that's easy give me okay let's take this chessboard there give me one grain for the first square two for the second and doubling on and on and the right. and the shah said oh Oh, that's not so much. I'll do that. And he started counting, and as the squares go up and doubling and doubling, he realized the vizier was going to bankrupt him. So he lopped the vizier's head off. So 
the corresponding here is the devil wanted one hair for the for the first, yes, yeah. two for the second, and so on and so forth in the same manner for the number of hairs. So if there's 17 doublings, so that's two well, that's to the not, I, I googled it. It's about 130,000 hairs we have. Yeah, he's, he's rapidly getting red hair, right? <laughs> Starts he, off yeah. just one hair and then becomes. Well, he so he should have he should have lost out a long time before he does. I mean, I love the story. I'm just quibbling, but. <laughs> but. So 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 there's 130,000 hairs on the human head, is what you're saying? Yeah. And so, it only takes 17 wishes to get there. So maybe that's the, that's the we're being tricked, right? <laughs> that's the evidence, the internal inconsistency. Well, yeah, yeah, because two to the 17th power is 131,000. Right. So yeah, so he sh- maybe he had a little more hair than a normal human person. <laughs> maybe that's maybe I, was, I was thinking maybe chest hairs, pubic hairs, leg hairs. What what? I don't know. <laughs> he specified hairs on the head. So. Okay. Okay. So. Because maybe he was balding a bit. <laughs> he made a bald spatch to help out. <laughs> he did say he's just comb over his hair, so that's the usual, <laughs> the usual well, trick for, for men who are receding on top. <laughs> Have you guys and any of you read um, uh, La Chaise Galerie? It's a uh, story I did for reading Short and Deep. Um, it's a Quebecois um, legend uh, done no. in English. No. No. Okay, so it's really pretty cool. It's um, it's uh, translation is the bewitched canoe or the flying canoe, um, and it's about these um, uh, I guess lumbermen who are working uh over the winter in a remote um, uh, shake sh- shanty town, um, and and there uh, it's it's um, I guess New Year's Eve. Or maybe it's Christmas Eve, and they want to go. Ba- they wish about you know going back and seeing their 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 sweethearts back in uh, Montreal or wherever it is, and they decide to run Le Chaise Galie, which is a apparently thing you can do. You just get into the canoe, um, and you have to have the right number of guys. You have to have an even number because an odd number will uh, damn you. And you make a promise to the devil. You say, um, if you will grant us the ability to uh, drive this canoe, we will uh, we will do it. Um, but uh, you have to make sure that during your journey, you don't ever say the name of God or uh, while passing, flying through the sky um, in your canoe, <laughs> you do not touch the steeples. Uh, where any crosses are. So you have to sort of become uh, devil-like and uh, swear temporary allegiance. And if you do this, um, uh, you can fly at night. If you do it right, you can sort of use the devil's powers without becoming the devil himself. And it's a very funny story and a very fun story. It's very nested, again, like this story is, uh, where at the beginning of the story we've got a... a, um, a camp cook who talks about 50 years before, just as in this story we have uh, 50 years before at the beginning by Dumas. uh, And he tells the people gathered around a very similar uh, situation. You know, they're working in a remote location. Uh, It's all men. They are thinking about their sweethearts. They're they're doing a taffy pull, 
which is kind of fun and jumping over barrels and drinking a lot because it's it's New Year's Eve. And uh, he tells them this story uh, while they're waiting for the taffy to get, I guess, the right um, consistency. He tells the story of how 50 years ago he ran Le Chais Galerie. Uh, but what's so funny about the story is there is mention of running the Loop Guru, which is the running the werewolf, as in doing basically what happens in this story, becoming uh, sort of a servant of the devil and getting away with it. Hmm. And hmm. it's a fascinating um, document because um, Quebec is cut off from France relatively early in you know the French Empire. Um, there's a battle, the British win, and they conquer France and say, this is ours now. And that cuts off Quebec from, from French storytelling and French society in a, in a rather extreme way. So that even if you, if you learn f- French in Canada, you're le- learning Quebecois French. And mm. when you go to France, it it's very quaint. It sounds like it's different, you know. French in France is different from Quebecois French because it's it's from the 17th, 18th century. Yeah, right? it's, just, it's, so, it's so cool, huh? It's not interesting. Huh. And I could like that little time warp. It is, and, yeah. and there's a kind of um, uh, sort of cheekiness, a kind of uh, frozen-in-amber-ness mm. that you get from reading uh, this very sort of Canadian retelling of of um, the Chase Galerie is kind of um, a retelling of another European folk, folk tale, which is um, the what's the hunt in the sky called, Mr. Jim Moon? Uh, the wild hunt. The wild hunt, right? So, uh, can you explain that? Uh, well, the wild hunt uh, it goes back to the ancient Norse. And it was Odin, Valkyries, and uh, assorting assorted hounds and warriors would at the midst at the midwinter solstice, or sometimes just any dark and stormy night, um, would uh, be seen riding across the sky, uh, supposedly hunting the souls of the wicked. Right. Um, this this legend spread all over Europe, and actually the, the Norse elements were later forgotten. Uh, and in England, there are several sort of wild hunts that don't have Odin in as their leader. And some it's just more generically the devil. Uh, there's another round Windsor, which is Hearn the Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, traditionally, so they, are, they are out uh, uh, hunt, hunting the hunting souls. Um, not always the souls of the wicked. In some traditions, it's... Um, the souls of the uh, recently deceased and trying to get them before they go to heaven. Yeah, and it's it's really fascinating. Like, there's a kind of um, uh, fascistic horror to it because um, apparently one of the ways it works in the in the wild hunt is is if you don't become a huntsman, you become the hunted. So if you hear the the horn, is it Odin's horn, whoever whoever's horn it is. Um, you must either take up into the sky um, and become one of the hunters, or you become uh, chased by the hunter. And it's it, you think about how fascism works, right? Is 
is the, we're all stronger together, right? You bind all the people together in the, the actual fascia is a bunch of sticks that are tied together with a rope, much stronger than any individual stick. Uh, this bundle of sticks is super strong. And you see, like, there's this horn coming by and somebody calls out, hey, are you a communist? And he said, no, I hate communists. And you join the, the witch hunt, right? <laughs> and we actually have uh, almost witch hunt at the beginning of this book with, hmm. with um, what's the guy's name? The teeth knocked out. <laughs> McKay. 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 Yeah. I, and uh, don't you love what teeth are missing? Did you notice? Nope. His canines. Oh. 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 <laughs> His canines are, are missing, and he uh, he has he talks all this funny way, but he's always got the pipe in his mouth, right? And you can actually understand him when he's talking with his mouth closed with the pipe in it, but when he actually takes it out to talk, nobody understands what he's saying. That's funny. Because and he's the, whistling, right? <laughs> The witch that he wants to go hunting, the old mole, yes, um, is Tebow's mistress or was. So um, I tried to figure out wow, who that was. I think that's, that's cool. the bailiff's wife, like the yeah, because she was the only one that lived near um, whatever the location is, Harmont or something that they mentioned. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so he was going after her and calling her a witch. Yeah. And it's it, and and I love the way uh, Dumas' father deals with it, right? He says, right. "Oh well, that sounds very bad, but um, I've got this job for you. It requires you to go there." And then he writes a letter yeah. that says, "Well, my my uh, gameskeeper's got it into his head that he's going to go kill this woman. So here's yeah, what we're going to do. <laughs> Please pass in him the letter." He's not even my gameskeeper, but hi, this idiot. <laughs> this idiot thinks blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, but he Please doesn't actually think he's an idiot, right? Uh, uh, th that's what's so cool about Dumas' um, father's character there, is he's he is um, sort of uh, imperial and imperious, but he has a, a, a great wisdom, too, I think, in that that is the way to, you know... It, you can't talk that guy down. They <laughs> say, no, you yeah. haven't been bewitched. You haven't been be-nightmared. Um, <laughs> That's such a good word. <laughs> he solves it in a really uh, smart way, I think. And mm -hmm. um, it, it, it fits with the character of the rest of the book, with Dumas being so cheeky. He's so cheeky. He's yeah. so cheeky. I just love it. You can imagine as well... In those times, like that was probably so normal to have to deal with that shit all the time. Like just people with their superstitions and crazy ideas, and trying to like talk people down out of their oh. trees and be like, oh, "We're still know, dealing with that stuff, man, right?" Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Modern <laughs> politics is exactly that. That's true. And you really can't you can't talk people out of stuff like that. So you just have to change the subject or uh, distract them with some other thing. I think send them on an errand for. A fortnight. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I um I found this in one of the Wikipedia entries. Um, uh, I thought this was about uh, somebody who knew Dumas. It says the most generous, large-hearted being in the world, Dumas also was the most delightfully amusing and egotistical creature on the face of the earth. His his tongue was like a windmill. <laughs> Once set in motion, <laughs> you never knew when it would stop, especially if the theme was himself. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> <laughs> you totally feel that, I think, in this book. He's just 
just so enjoying the the <laughs> the spinning of wow. a massive yarn out of a tiny little thread, right? Mm-hmm. I went I went I went hunting and I got a book out of it basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> Apparently, well, that's what it says in the intro, right? That there's a bunch of these books that were written together, but this one wasn't uh, wasn't quite completed. Uh, until a certain date, and so it should be classed together with these other ones, which, uh, of course, I haven't read. Um, but I, I felt that there was a lot of cool stuff in here, and that's not there. There's more to this again than I think. Uh, not everybody here will know. Mr. Jim Moon should know about it, though. Uh, I think we might have talked about this a little bit uh, in why we should decide to do this as a podcast. Do we talk about um, sort of the wolf problems in late 18th century france yes we did because that famous case of um the huge wolf they hunt that uh, inspired the movie the brotherhood of the wolf that's the yes. one that's the one i'm thinking mm-hmm. of so um can you recount any of that for us uh well basically there was um this huge wolf that terrorized the region of france for a number of years and uh it became quite the you know, sort of cause celebra to to go to this region and try and hunt it down um there were kind of rumors that you know this was no ordinary wolf that it was a, a spawn of the devil or maybe some kind of a, a werewolf because it, it seemed to be of unusual size and uh, have preternatural cunning uh and but eventually it was actually caught and killed if i remember rightly um and it was just a very big wolf it didn't didn't have a human skin on the inside, or at least <laughs> no one recorded that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I looked it up by by searching for big wolf or uh, dangerous wolf. It's called the Beast of Go- Govardhan. The Beast Go, of it, the Beast Go- of Govardhan. The Beast mm. of Govardhan is the historical name associated with the man-eating grey wolf dog or wolf dog that terrorized the former province of Govardhan, modern day blah blah blah, um, in south central France between 1764 and 1767. So. Remember when this story is set, right? Um, it's set in a period 50... Uh, well, okay. So it's, it's written in 1857. Is that right? 1857-ish. Yep. And he says um, the most of the material uh, for this book is based on uh, what I remember from 50 years ago. Um, and then we get that sort of 50-year flashback to when... He's a young man or a baby, <laughs> three years old, the mom and all that stuff and the dad, right? And then the uh, the guy with his teeth knocked out. What's his name? I'm forgetting every time. <laughs> McKay. McKay. Poor McKay. Poor McKay. So McKay then recalls, I believe, what he was saying when he was young, and he was 40 at the time, uh, at least one of the one of the scenes where we see him, he's 40. And he, he says when he was a young man and the hairs on his head were all black, not like they are now, where they're almost all white, right? I love this uh, recurring thing back to hair. He um, heard tell of this horrible uh, wolf thing. And so we're getting going back and back and back in time. So this is actually a, around the right period for the, the Beast of Galvanin horror so i'll just read the next part here um the attacks which covered an area stretching 90 
by 80 kilometers were said to have been committed by a beast or beasts that had a formidable teeth, immense tails, according to contemporary eyewitnesses. Victims were often killed by having their throats torn out. The Kingdom of France used a considerable amount of manpower and money to hunt the animals, including the resources of several nobles, soldiers, civilians, and any number of royal huntsmen. The number of victims differs according to sources. In 1987, one study estimated there had been 210 attacks, resulting in 113 deaths, 49 injuries, 98 of the victims were killed and partly eaten. However, other sources claim it killed between 60 and 100 adults and children, as well as injuring more than 30. And I, I remember reading, saying how people would have their arms torn off by this horrible monster. Um... <laughs> And, and then they start hunting it, and there's a whole bunch of people who claim, you know, look, I got it. And then the attacks continue. And that's the idea, like, maybe it's not one wolf. Maybe it is a um, sort of a wolf chain in a certain sense. And uh, then eventually they take uh, the corpse of one of them, uh, and it is massive, apparently, to... Um, to the court and uh, look at it. Um, he's uh, sometimes referred to as the Napoleon Bonaparte of wolves. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think I think that's so cool that there it's not just here. It's a cute wolf story. It's there is basis. There's reason for thinking. Uh, you know, imagine you're in that 90 by 80 square kilometer uh, area and. People you know are getting savagely killed and or arms ripped off and or eaten by this wolf. You would be sort of becoming superstitious is my bet, you know? That's hmm. sort of how you would become superstitious is my bet. The, de the devil walks our, our department in wolf form, yeah. Sounds like I mean, it, right? It's, uh, well, yeah, if a unnatural beast is wandering the countryside eating people, yeah, I could see how superstition peasants might uh, go for it. There's one, there, go for that explanation. Uh, I want to come back to the novel, but uh, there is one more um, story but, that but, is cool as well. Yep. But, uh, uh, th I mean, there's... there's I mean, if you read the Wikipedia entry, there are other, there are other theories... That uh, what the actual beast was not only just wolves. I mean, there was there was a there's the, some people thought maybe it actually was an a lion brought in from Africa. I mean, this some of these theories were explored in the movie because uh, you've seen the movie, haven't you, Jesse? I haven't, not yet. No, I want to. You haven't seen the has any, has anyone else besides me and the Jim seen the movie? For this book? No, it's, no, it's, no. It's, the, no. it's about the, the beast. Oh, oh. no. No, no, but 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 it's got that same sort of feel. Like, I mean, the the ending part of this book where they're going on wolf hunts, looking for this thing and scouring the countryside and killing everything is very reminiscent of what happens in the movie. As you say, as they're looking for the beast and just killing any anything they come across. So, we are, what what the actual beast of Javan Javadan was. It probably was a probably was a pack of wolves, but we can't actually. Uh, be sure, be sure. I mean, it's it's just so long ago, and I mean that was only at the dawn of age of science. So, it's it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting mystery, and it's it's cropped up now and again in fantastic literature as to what the beast really was. So, 
Yeah, it sounds well, like a, it, it was not like a fake thing, right? This is a, there, there's too much evidence of you know you can't have that many dead bodies without starting to say what right. is going on well, here. <laughs> I mean, it, and wolves are real creatures. It's, it, they are, I mean, obviously not as uh, they're extinct in Europe now, right? But there was a time period when they weren't extinct, and this is maybe the uh, it's almost like the wolf's revenge, right? We're going out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to remember, you also do have rabies as well, sure. which you know will turn a wolf, which normally would be, uh, you know, very wary of humanity, and right, they've got their bit, I've got mine. But rabid wolves will be, you know, anything's fair game at certain stages of the disease, and they, you know they venture out in daylight and start acting very out of character, and you you know you can understand kind of you know why people think that wolf isn't acting like a wolf. Maybe it's possessed of something else. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's one more story I want to talk about uh, because I think it's really cool and it's connected. Um, I'm not a massive Alexander Dumas fan because I haven't read anything more than just this one book. And, you know, uh, no, I know about his other stuff, but I haven't read any of the other stuff really in the original or at least any translation. But I am a big fan of Guy de Maupassant, and he is sort of the, uh, I want to say, inheritor of that sort of French um, prolific writer of great, great stories. Um, uh-huh. Dumas seems to be the serial master, right? He, he writes these massive serials that go on forever, and everybody just eats up. Um, Maupassant did write uh, novels, but I, I haven't read any of those. I've all read only his his uh, short stories, and he's written a number of great ones. There's one, um, usually in English it's titled The Wolf. I've seen it titled The White Wolf. Um, and, oh, yes, yes. You know this story, yeah. Mr. Jim? It's a good, terrific, yes, terrific yes. story. Mm. Um, I just I want to read you the intro and then uh, maybe get to the end and just fill in the, the details, because it's, it's again, it's it's uh, it shows you sort of the connection between madness for hunting which of course hunters do and uh acting um like a savage beast um like what the hunters are hunting right so when when a hunter goes out hunting uh i'll just read i'll just read the intro here here is what the old marquis d'arville told us towards the end of the saint hubert's dinner at the house of the baron de revel we had killed a stag that day the Marquis was the one, uh, was the only one of the guests who had not taken part in the chase, for he never hunted. All through the long repast, we had talked about hardly anything but slaughter of animals. The ladies themselves were interested in the tales, uh, in tales sanguinary, and often unlikely. And the orators imitated the attacks of the combats of men against beasts, raised their arms, romanced in their thundering voices. Uh, uh, Monsieur Darville talked well with a certain poetry of style somewhat high sounding but full of effect he must have repeated this story often for he told it fluently not hesitating on words choosing them with a skill to produce a picture gentlemen I have never hunted neither did my father nor my grandfather nor my great grandfather this last was the son of a man who hunted more than all of you put together. He died in 1764, which is exactly the right time, right? I will tell you how. His name was Jean. He was married, father of a child who became my ancestor, and he lived 
with the, his young younger brother, Francois d'Arville, in the castle in Lorraine, in the middle of the forest. And this is uh, eastern uh, France. Francois d'Arville had remained a bachelor for, for the love of the chase. They both hunted from one end of the year to the other, without repose, without stopping, without fatigue. They loved only that, understood nothing else, talked only of that, lived only for that. They had at heart that one passion that was terrible and inexorable. It consumed them, having entirely invaded them, leaving place for no other. Um, and so, as the story begins, um, on that day, right, uh, they go out by, uh, they, they get prep, prep for the great hunt by waking up in the morning, going out and shooting everything in sight, all the little birds and the <laughs> animals. And then um, they decide to go, these two brothers decide to go out um, hunting for real, not just, you know, shooting while at breakfast, killing everything in the forest. Um, and then there's this description of them, and it's just wonderful. Um they were, it seems, immeasurably tall, bony, hairy, violent, and vigorous. The younger, still taller than the older, had a voice so strong that, according to a legend of which he was proud, all the leaves of the forest shook when he shouted. And when they both mounted to go off to the hunt, that must have been a superb spectacle to see those two giants straddling their huge horses. Um, and later on it says something to the effect of, uh, it looks like the horses are bouncing underneath them as they they fly through the forest because they're so big. Um, and then rumor began to circulate. People talked of a colossal wolf with gray fur, almost white, who had eaten two children, gnawed off a woman's arm, strangled all the dogs of the Garden du Puy, and penetrated without fear into the farmyards to come snuffling under the doors. The people in their houses affirmed that they had felt his breath and that it had, it had made the flame of the lights flicker. And so soon a panic ran throughout the province. So these two guys go out hunting, right? And as they hunt this wolf, they, they track it down. It seems to be incredibly intelligent and good at uh, escaping. Um, they are so vigorous in their ride. One of them accident, accidentally hits a branch and his the top of his head comes off and his brains are dashed out. Um, <laughs> and the horse keeps going. And then, um, <laughs> I'll just read the ending here. Um, then he threw himself upon the monster. This is the ancestor who didn't die. He felt himself strong... Oh, maybe he did die. He felt himself strong enough to overrun a mountain, to bruise stones in his hands. The beast tried to bite him, seeking to strike in at his stomach, but he had seized it by the neck without even using his weapon, and he strangled it gently. Listening to the stoppage of the breathings in its throat and beatings of its heart, and he laughed, rejoicing madly, pressing closer and closer, his formidable embrace, crying in delirium of joy, Look, Jean! Look! Jean's like lying there with his brains knocked out. Um, literally knocked out. <laughs> All resistance ceased. The body of the wolf became lax. He was dead. Then Francois, taking him up in his arms, carried him off and went and threw him at the feet of his elder brother, repeating in a little tender voice, There, 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 my little Jean. See him? Then he replaced the saddle, the two bodies, one upon the other, and he went his way. He returned to the chateau, laughing and crying like Gargantua at the birth of Pantagruel, uttering shouts, nice. of, yeah, uttering shouts of triumph <laughs> and stamping with joy and relating the death of, his, of the beast, and moaning and tearing his beard in the telling of that of his brother. 
And often later, when he talked again of that day, he said with tears in his eyes, If only that poor Jean could have seen me strangle that other! He would have died content, I am sure of it. The widow of my ancestor inspired her orphan son with the horror of the chase, which has transmitted itself from father to son as far down as myself. This reminds me a lot of what happens at, at the beginning of the book with the mom saying, No, don't take him! And he says, I will <laughs> protect him. He will be between my legs. I will feed him. And, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really awesome scene. It's also a very uh, Jordan Peterson scene in a certain sense, right? In the women are trying to protect their kids and men are, no, we have to make a man of him. Whatever. Uh, the, Mar- <laughs> the Marquis d'Arville was silent. Someone asked, that story is a legend, isn't it? And the storyteller answered, I swear to you that it is true from one end to the other. Then a lady declared in a little soft voice, all the same, it is fine to have passions like that. Guillemot is also funny. Uh, this, is a, this is sort of a retelling of the same sort of issue, right? The, the hunters in this novel that are chasing after the wolf are cruel and rude and terrible. And mm. the wolf is dangerous too. I, I think it's fascinating. We, we've got these this legacy of of sort of a real incident and a real kind of uh, fear. It it, it 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 taps into something primal. I mean, dogs have been domesticated for what fifteen thousand years top. So the 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 fear the fear of the animals which are close to man that are. Are, I mean, I wolves. Are, wolves are the wolves and bears are the predators that are closest to man outside of Africa. I mean, Don't I mean tigers, yes, tigers, yeah, and, and tigers, and I mean, and look how many religions there are of werewolves, were bears, and tigers, rakashas. I mean, predator. Pred, I mean, we we kind of remember almost on, on a genetic level that once upon a time we were prey before we learned to fight these animals and so when these animals turn against us that that's a powerful and deep story that resonates whether it's actually happening to you as into the peasants in in 1760s france or if you're just reading a dumas story there's something that really speaks to us about one day we might be prey again yeah there, there's a movie called the gray i think it's a liam neeson movie well, oh yeah that's that's a good liam neeson movie, yeah actually. i mean it's it's saying you know these aren't any ordinary wolves or whatever it is. The important part is um, uh, wolves will attack people, but they don't, they've been sort of uh, disabused of it uh, by us killing them. Right. Yeah. Now that we have the tech for it. But um, I, I know people who've had, you know, wolves stalking them, right. That, that yeah, they're walking I, down the beach and they're like, that's a wolf and it's behind me. and It's <laughs> waiting for me to run. If wow, I run, it's, it's so going to come after me. Right. Yeah, I think I posted when I was reading this, I was listening to it on audio and walking in the mm-hmm. um, the big park here at dusk, and then I had coyotes all around me all of a sudden. So I had, <laughs> I was listening to this book, and I had the pit bull with me that I was walking, and then I was, the coyotes came up to about just like a couple of meters away, maybe. Wow. So then the pit bull is growling at them, and they're all standing there, and I was listening to this audio book like, yeah. okay. Yeah. We're all like looking at each other like, who's predator, who's prey? It's, uh, <laughs> the thing is, wow. is they, you know, that's what, that's what coyotes eat. Is, is dogs and cats, right? Yeah. And so yeah. Y- you've got a, one pit bull there, and that is, you know, it's a formidable beast, 
but not against the whole pack. No, and it was exactly that feeling that you were just describing. It's like, don't run, because this is totally a... We're all looking at each other trying to figure out who's the predator, who's the prey. So you just got to be like, you know, I am the predator. <laughs> like, back off. Yeah. No running. <laughs> and, and they're not... They're, that's the thing, is they're not... Wolves are not stupid. They, they don't attack right. to lose. They attack to win. So they're waiting for the... They're looking for weakness. They're saying, is this thing sick? Can we take it? Right, exactly. You could feel that whole little interaction going on in everyone's minds in that moment. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, dogs um, will hide, you know, limps if just naturally. Oh, really? Yeah, so if, like, you know, you're out in the woods and you've got a, 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 a dog that has an injury, um, that injury will be hidden as best they can just they try and hide wow, it naturally that is so cool because it, yeah. it that's crazy absolutely deadly to be thought to be uh possibly dinner that's cool because this pit bull that i walk um she never barks at other dogs or has any kind of dog aggression whatsoever but she will to the coyotes and she puts on like this really loud kind of roar like mm-hmm. it's like a really like roar. so i guess it's part of that as well it's just like recognizing you have to not be the submissive dog in this situation. There's no injuries, there's no weakness. Interesting, also related to that, uh, called honest signals. This is, um, this is you know the springbok, the kind of uh, deer you find in South Africa. You guys mm-hmm. seen this animal? Mm-hmm. So there's these. Um, the springbok is famous for bouncing, like it it bounces around, right? And it does it in the presence of predators. And it seems to be, like, playful, like, joyful, right? But apparently, the the thinking behind what's going on there is that this is a way of saying, look, I can waste all this energy because I have all this energy. You really want to wow. chase after wow. me? Are you kidding me? Uh, look at me. And it starts bouncing around. And then the others start bouncing <laughs> around because the one who doesn't bounce around gets to be eaten. Wow, that's so crazy. It's not oh, a fascinating... Like, nature is devious. Some dialogue. And dangerous. What do when we see a bear jump up and down well, instead of play dead? Uh, well, I, I'm told what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to loudly sing, right? Not at the bear. <laughs> just just walk around and you say, yes, uh, robust, row, row, row. You're both... I think that's true until the point it's attacking and then it's play dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, the black bears around here, they, they've never, I've never been attacked by a black bear. I accidentally kicked a black bear in my youth. True story. What did you talk about? <laughs> Jesse bear kicker. Uh, it was a, it was a minor mistake. The black bear turned around, uh, saw me, kept on with its business. So. Yeah, I was at the uh, the dump. You remember when you're? I don't. They they don't have dumps anymore. They have recycling centers or whatever. We, we they're, no, they're still dumps. I know, Jesse. but you know where humans could go to them uh, or civilians or whatever. We were making a trip to the dump to dump the stuff at the dump, right? And uh, being a young person who didn't have as many toys as he wanted, I'm like everybody else's trash is my. It's my glory, right? Maybe there's something good here. Because people throw out good stuff all the time, right? So I'm walking over the piles of garbage. And this is uh, not a fenced area. It's just a sort of a a dump. (laughs) You know, just an area that's uh, open to the forest. And apparently 
there was wild animals in there, and uh, they're eating people's wow. garbage. And I, I'm looking down at my feet, looking at the ground, kicking things, right, to knock things out of the. Um, I don't want to touch them with my hands to look at the stuff, right? So I kick something, and then my foot hits something. <laughs> it turned out to be the a black bear eating like a. I, I remember it as a salmon, but that's obviously not what it was because nobody would throw away. Wow. But it must have been some fish guts or something. Um, and uh, yeah, it just turned its head, and I like backed away slowly <laughs> and then ran. <laughs> and I've encountered I, I was... black bears on the mountains here frequently, and there's never been an issue. So I'm not I was worried about the black bears. Hunted by a fox. You were you were you were what? Hunted by a fox. I was hunted by a fox. I was in Yellowstone National Park with my friends, and we had stopped by the side of the wall because I wanted to get some pictures of the mountains because Yellowstone is not just about the geysers or the animals. It's 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 it's, it's a caldera with lots of lovely mountain peaks. So I got out of the car. I was taking a couple of shots, and the, my friends are kind of indicating me the, to look and. I'm I'm walking along. I take a couple more shots. I move along, and this and this little fox is following me, just watching what I'm doing. And every time I moved, it moved. I finally turned around, took a picture of the thing, and then it decided to run away. It was like I was being stalked by the fox. Do you think and it was like after I, you for like uh, you're gonna throw away some food or snacks did, or are you I a snack? Because a fox my, my, they my, don't my, generally attack my, my, people, do they? No, 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 my friends were making the joke, like, oh, yeah, that fox wanted to eat you. But, yeah, I think it was probably just curious whether I was going to leave anything. Well, I didn't even notice the thing. I was too entranced by the mountains. actually noticed this fox for a couple minutes was actually uh, watching what the heck this human was up to. Was, maybe I'll, like, I maybe I'll trip and fall, and then I can eat him. <laughs> <laughs> I am not for eating. <laughs> it is funny that our stories now are all, like, us getting hunted by these little creatures and not like in this story where everyone is just racing through forests, chasing the, <laughs> chasing the same creatures, the foxes, the wolves. Get their time now. It seems to be in the story, a lot of, um, a lot of hunting and boozing yep. and sexing. Mm. <laughs> and failed sexing. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted at you guys that quote about the wine at the beginning. I thought that was hilarious. Um, and th- yeah, and that's throughout the book, right? There's these sort of just little laugh out loud moments, and most of the rest of the time, I've got a little smile on my face, you know. Listening yeah, to this I book. think my f- like favorite scene in the whole book maybe is where he's um he meets the two valets who are <laughs> wearing their gray coats to help their help the affairs of their accounts or whatever it is. Yep. And, and explain um, what gray coats are. That was kind of like like. Okay, that's yeah. an angel diversion. Explain it's what a so coat good. Is. And then he and then he drinks to the health of the devil, and they won't join him. So he throws the glasses out the window and lightning bolts <laughs> takes the glasses. <laughs> like, it's so good. That whole scene is just crazy. Yeah, there there's a very you know this is not treating devil devilry as a wholly serious matter. And that's yeah. that's the whole feeling you get reading the Honor Beaugrand um, La Chaise Galerie. You know, the the takeaway from that one, the bewitched canoe, the flying canoe story, is that at the end you think he says, um, so uh, he you know there's a frame and he says, so gentlemen, don't ever try to uh, uh, do La Chaise Galerie. Um, and and don't do the loop guru because it it will threaten your immortal soul. I've been saved. Um, back then I was wicked. I, I've been saved now. Um, but 
we also get the sense that um, what happened really was at the end of the story that one of the guys has to be tied up uh, or during the return journey one of the guys has to be tied up because he's he's drunk too much and he's he's bound to take the lord's name in vain and that that would curse <laughs> them so they tie him up and then due to uh they're not paddling properly and having this guy struggling trying to get free uh of his gag um they crash into a tree and land on the ground uh not too far away from where they took off um and they're all bruised and battered and uh the canoes you know tipped over and everything scattered and you get the sense that actually what really happened was uh, they got drunk and got into a massive brawl with each other and just punched each other over and over and were laying in the snow <laughs> all night. Oh. <laughs> and um, and the, the whole sense is that, yeah, you don't take actually this religion stuff too seriously. Don't worry about this. Talk about the devil because it's kind of just a joke. And they're, they're, so they, they get to say a story about how how, you know, Yes, the devil is dangerous, and actually he's wicked, and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, ultimately, that's not the feeling I come away from this story with, is that the devil's actually all that dangerous. I think he's more quaint, right? Cute. Yeah. Well, the devil doesn't really have to do a lot, does he? No. He's kind of, Chivo goes, yeah, I'll sell my soul. And the devil goes, okie dokie then, what do you want for it? <laughs> okay, <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> you know? That's exactly how it works in... Uh, in Lachey's Galerie, too. All you have to do is basically say, ah, I'd like to make a deal with the devil. And, and it just happens. He, he doesn't he actually, you don't even have to have him show up. He just, you you can call upon these evil powers whenever you like. Mm. And, and half of his wishes were by accident, too. Yeah. Like, he didn't even mean to, you know, have his friend Landry end up in the whatever, in the hospital and, and die. And, and like so many things... Is a passing thought, not a wish. And, and and then there was the wish that backfired because when he got into the got into uh, the bot the body of the bear and it's like he had already uh I had already wished we, we, on him. Yeah, it's like and so it's like oh oh yep you're you're, you're gonna be Oops. caught in your adultery because I already set that up. Oops. Yeah. Which I think is is uh you know some is is how he feels about people like. Yes, there are, there's a lot of evil and stuff, but but a lot of times it's just like a passing thought, you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's um I think why it's so cool to to connect it to that frame story with with McKay. <laughs> there, I got him. Uh, McKay, you know, he, he it's not just a passing thought. He's really got it into his head that this woman's a witch and that he's gonna have to do something about her. I mean, I just love how he shows up. Knocks on, or just walks into the Lord's, uh, the general's bedroom, right? <laughs> he says, "Sir, I'm be, I'm, be, I am be nightmared." And what's be nightmaring you? <laughs> like, what's going on here? You got a big axe in your hand. Um, <laughs> and then, okay, we got to deal with this. We got to deal with it the right way. Um, uh, in my search for stories that were connecting and interesting, I thought about how that phrase, uh, "leader of the pack," you know. That's the sort of, I guess, a 1950s sort of thing. Um, but how there are uh, sort of a distinction between um, uh, just plain up werewolf stories and the kind of uh, running with the wolves stories. Um, and so I found this magazine article or story from August 1939. 
I, I think I might have mentioned it to you guys. Uh, it's called The Wolf Woman. It's by H. Bedford Jones, who was a kind of adventure writer, popular in the early 20th century. Um, and this story is terrible. It's it's a it's a it's basically the guy invents a time machine, and then there's a framing device showing how the Aryans came out of India, and um, there's this lady who makes uh, a deal with the invading hordes. She's an Aryan. Her son's name is quote unquote Shiva. And later we find out he. Oh come on! Uh, later we he, we find out he becomes a god because of uh, the actions in this story. But she she makes a deal um, with these invading people, uh, where no man will of hers will go out and attack them, um, but she herself, uh, with her pet wolf, goes out there under a wolf skin cap, and um, kills people at night, and then at the end of the story, the king who has encircled her or encircled her or whatever. Um, makes him her bride. So I thought it was actually just a super, super racist story. As I'm reading it, I'm like, this is terrible. And it is a very racist story, and it cares about that sort of thing. But it's also sort of dealing with the mythology of um, werewolfery. It says, you know, this is how werewolves came about. And then and then back to the framing story, they basically say, wow, that was a terrible story. <laughs> um but the art for it is is magnificent, and uh, there's a beautiful illustration of of this woman with very deep blue eyes, um, uh, and kind of an Indian look to her, um, wearing uh, wolf skin, and in front of her a massive wolf, and it's the idea that she um, is harnessed the power of wolves. So I'm wondering, do you guys know of a lot of other stuff like this? Because I found that one um, panel that I sent, I think, to Marissa from Werewolf by Night, where you've got the werewolf, uh, what's his name, Jack, Jack Russell. Jack Russell, <laughs> yes. Um, lead, wow. uh, you know, uh, amongst a, a pack of wolves. So um, uh, do you guys know of any more stories like this where there's a, a human uh, sort of commanding a group of wolves together? Hmm. I'm sure that it exists, but I couldn't find uh, much more evidence than these two things. Uh, well, you've got various comics where you've got uh, various heroes who have animal powers. Right. Um, I know there's an issue of Animal Man. Because um, I remember I had a Brian Bolland uh, cover where he's become a bit deranged and it's him running naked with a whole pack of wolves yeah. following him. That's what I'm he's got thinking wolves. of. Wolf powers. That's Animal Man, you say. Yeah, yeah. Neat. Uh, before that, I'm sure there's lots of sort of um, pulpy sort of sub-Tarzan stories about uh, people who can command animals Good as well. Point. Yeah, Tarzan, is he's got his uh, monkey pack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love, I love, uh, I've, I've been thinking about how much I love Tarzan. I, I've already done a show on him, but uh, I've been reading the comic book, and just I love that he's got names for all the other creatures of the forest. You know, they've all got Sabor and and uh, and Tantor, and the, the, it's um it's very cool. It, the idea of you know being raised by wolves, I guess, goes all the way back to ancient Rome, doesn't it? Or even more ancient Bob Rome. Wilson. Bob Wilson Remus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they they, they were kind of savage. 
<laughs> I guess that's the 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 connection, right? Uh, I I mean, I mean, maybe maybe Mr. Jim Moon has theories on it's like what what is the eventual lure of the werewolf story and i mean is is it hearkening back to our own primitive past is it a connection to when we weren't civilized a look at looking to when we didn't have cities and civilizations what what appeals about this so much well i think there's there's two distinct phases i think kind of in say from the medieval period up to the 19th century werewolf stories are crystallizing a very real fear of wolves and predators who you know they might not actually kill you but if a wolf kills your entire flock he's as good as killed you yeah. <laughs> you know you're, you're ruined starve. economically yeah. yeah um and you know it's kind of you can say it's a superstitious fear but if there are wolves out to get you you know it's like paranoia are you paranoid if they are out to get you um but in sort of fiction werewolves as like in my series, they kind of, from a lot of sort of folk tales, you get the modern werewolf law emerging with modern Hollywood. Uh, you know, it's kind of the kind of the wolf man pretty much writes the book on what people think is the actual folklore of werewolves. But it's not. It's actually all just bits taken from here, there, everywhere and just made up wholesale. Um, mm-hmm. It's the wolf man that gives us the idea of Wolvesbane the sort of the idea that it's a curse to be a werewolf. Um, you transform at a full moon. You can only be killed by silver. You can only be killed by th- the woman you love, and um, all of this kind of stuff. And I see it, it werewolf stories become, you know, very popular once they sort of got that sort of cocktail right. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it does sort of borrow, I think, a large amount from um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, and the appeal of the werewolf is it's kind of on one hand, on a flippant level, the werewolf is the monster you can be part-time. Hey, it's only three nights a month. I can live with that. I can you know, get on with it. You know, and it's kind of, a lot of people, you know, wouldn't mind being a monster. You know, there's a few people who would like to eat, I'm sure, who annoyed yeah. us, you know. Yeah, that wasn't me. I was out of control. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's kind of, I think, it, it gains popularity in the 20th century is it's kind of, the werewolf is very much this a figure who is it's the man who you know not only casts off his humanity kids off his casts off his civilization and you, you return to an animal state and i think as we get you know become increasingly industrialized and urbanized throughout the 20th century that becomes far more appealing and it's that idea that you know civilization is only 3 meals away from barbarism mm. Oh, you know, three nights of the full moon. Hmm. Uh huh. I notice that there's a number of, um, yeah, sort of partial recipes in this book. So we've got the remember, there's the two bullets at the beginning um, with Dumas and McKay. Um, uh, He he marks his with a cross, right? And then they shoot, and he's nope. Your your bullet it, it couldn't hit him because uh, he can just bite it off. Right? He can bite the bullets out of the sky or whatever it is, and he finds they go looking for the bullets, and he finds um, Dumas's uh, I guess in the snow, and then. Um, there, but he found they actually actually hit, but since he's a werewolf, it didn't have any effect right. because the the bullet had mm-hmm. had struck him. But it not, has to not be made of gold or silver, right? 
Right. Um, and then there's the exchange of rings, right? <laughs> I love how the wolf is wearing a ring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, sim- symbolizing marriage. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's made a, a marriage deal with the devil. But also um, that the wolf has a silver ring and he has a gold ring. Is that Or is it the other way around? I think it's the other way around. And they swap, right? And then he tries to put the ring on his sweetheart and it won't fit her finger. Right? It, it's a, mm-hmm. it's like uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings ring. <laughs> it's always changing size. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a dangerous ring. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's that's some pretty interesting, um, uh, you know, if you fire those from the, from the bullet, that will kill it. But really, it hasn't. And who is... At the end, the one that they're hunt, or I guess at the beginning of the story, who, who is the wolf that they're hunting? Did he trade with somebody, or is it just yeah, they, there are many in the forest, call, or what's going? Oh. They call it Tebow. Yeah, it's Tebow's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Tebow's wolf, and or yeah, because at one point it is Tebow, and at one point in the story it's not. Right, it's the other. Um, it's it's the Sabo maker, and then it's whoever he's trading with. Right. And who is that guy? Yeah, the wolf is a the wolf is the devil I always took it to be. Well, yeah, yeah but it sounded like it sounded like that he was trapped and that's his escape, right? right? That's his escape from being the de- like the devil is not a guy. It's whoever it's or Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh how's it work in the Princess Bride? Um the Dread Pirate Roberts is whoever has the mantle, yeah. right? Mhm. Yeah, that's right. I am I the Dread the... Pirates Robert Roberts, and <laughs> so will you two be one day, my lad. Hey, oh, speaking of movies, we didn't even talk about Lady Hawk. Oh, I forgot about oh, Lady Hawk. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. Oh, for those listeners who haven't that's seen Lady Hawk, go see now Lady that Hawk. You pointed out. Yep, you got you got yeah you got the cursed Michelle Pfeiffer who's cursed to be a a bird during the day and you have Rutger Hauer who's cursed to be a wolf during the night. So they can't ever see each other, Except both as humans sunset and sunrise and, 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 and during an eclipse uh, and you need math and you need Matthew Broderick to help you out. <laughs> I, uh, that, I love that movie. When I saw it in the theater, I was like, this is amazing. And it, the soundtrack seems so very eighties now. Like I, I, I watched it a few months ago. I was like, wow, this really was an eighties movie. This music doesn't really fit the music, the movie, but it fits the '80s. But still, a great movie. Anyway. Yeah, it was a terrific. Um, I, I didn't think of I didn't think of that story at all. But obviously, it's it's combined with the idea of um, of curses uh, and curses. I mean, curses and that's literally what's going on here, right? It, yeah, it is a curse that you. And I love that the fact that this is, you know, swearing and cursing are synonyms. Um, and what they used to say, no cursing, no swearing, right? A lot of that is is just wisdom. Adults talking to kids saying, look, you're not going to make any promises about going out and killing that guy. I swear to God, I'm going to kill you if you say that thing again, right? Well, back in the day, <laughs> when people carried swords on their hips, right? <laughs> um, and there, the justice was whatever, you know, amount of money you had in the bank. Um, people would make these duels and go and get themselves killed a lot based on nothing, just a little argument that they get into with somebody. And this rule right. we have in, you know, in school, no swearing. Right? Like what am I, sw- 
What do you, what do you mean swearing? It's literally holding up your hand and saying, I swear to God, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> you say that one more time. Then he says it. What do I got? I got to do. Honor said I, I made a promise to myself. I have to go over there and hit that guy. Right. It's not it's not even profanity that we care. I'm like, no. And literally all of these words, profane, curse, swear. Right. They're, they're not. They don't mean they're metaphors for what we mean, which is basically disrespecting people, right? Threatening them, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Boy problems, <laughs> in other words, maybe. Maybe, could be. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, reading this book with me. This was the first yeah, time I've read a, 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 a full, a, a full uh, Dumas book, not an ex. Not a uh, cut-down version. So, yes, this is, this is a great experience. Cool. Now I'm going to read more of him now. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm going to read The Three Musketeers. Wow. I might, might want to join you on that. That that sounds fun. Excellent. Have, <laughs> have you ever done a show on it, Jesse? No. This is the first Dumas book I've ever done. Oh, okay. So the question is, is there a good audio book version of The Three Musketeers? We're going to have to do some investigations. I think I, I, I think so. I mean, all for one and one for all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we could really do. I mean, there's so much we can do with the Three Musketeers. It's it's crazy. I think I think there's an opportunity here. They, that is some crazy long book, though. I know as well. Um, yes, that that is a disadvantage. It, 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 it really is. Not, is it, it is. Sort of, I mean, this one is nice and short. Eight hours. But you did you did Moby Dick, Jesse. That's true. But that that took. And we're doing Dune. That took two attempts to do. <laughs> and uh, you are Moby doing Dick. Dune. Uh, but I think that might even be longer. I think. Uh, I think Dumas is, you know, this is his probably oh. his shortest thing. So, so I so I have to combine this with a little anecdote mm-hmm. about the Three Musketeers and this book. There's a uh, there's a video game called Warlock Two: Path of the Exile, which is basically this strategy game where you conjure creatures and build creatures and go fight other wizards. And one of the one of the creatures you can actually recruit is called Noble Werewolves. And when you click huh. on them, and they and you you hear this growly werewolf voice saying one for all, all for one and one for all. <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> Cute. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. All right, let's see when Mr. Jim Boone's back from Australia so we can plan a, another show here. Um, I think... Uh, <coughs> when, are you, when are you leaving? When are you coming back? Um, I'm leaving uh, a week on Monday, and I'm back 10th of June. All right, 10th of June, okay. Mm. Um, but you might need some recovery time. Because of the jet lags and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a Sunday. Or he might, quite be, horrendous. he might be wide awake and wired for like three days. <laughs> uh, and you're going to be flying into winter, right? Cause... Uh, well, just turning into autumn. Oh, over okay. There, so okay. On, to, wait, yeah, no, but... you'll be heading into spring then, right? No, no, it's kind of our summer is um, their winter. So I don't... It's, kind of, it's just kind of autumn time there now. I don't really get what they're. I, I don't. Okay. That makes more sense. Where are you going to in Australia? Uh, well, um, my sister's family's in Esperance, which is uh, southwest Australia. So we're flying into Perth. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, she has a lot of family around there. So we're going to be uh, in 
in that neck of the woods. It's a pretty warm part, huh? Yeah, warm yeah. Hot so. part of Australia. <laughs> All right, so the- it'll be warmer than here in the summer anyway, even in the winter. That's the way I figure. Yeah. <laughs> I I committed uh, four people to the Undying Thing uh, by Barry Payne uh, on Twitter mm. earlier. Um, it's relatively short and it sounds pretty interesting. I like Barry Payne. Um, so we could do that. How about June seventeenth? Does that work? Yes, that should be fine. All right, put that in there. Um, Misa, you were not invited for some reason, but you are welcome to join us. Uh, you're talking about this one for June seventeenth? Yeah, it's called the Undying Thing, and I don't remember is- anything about it other than I remember it sounded good. <laughs> uh, uh, Lovecraft liked it, uh, at least. Hmm. Let's see. Pain. What? How did I? How did I convince you guys to read it? Oh, I know. Marissa, I told it it has a thing in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a blob. You said it was Lovecraftian. Yes. Okay, so it says, uh, let's see here. Um, over the course of a long career, blah, 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 blah. The Undying Thing is a tale of a hideous entity lurking in the woods that H.P. Lovecraft appreciated. I believe what it is kind of sounds like the Hound of the Baskervilles um, with oh. a, uh, a, you know, a guy who does a horrible crime and then like kills his wife and then remarries and and the progeny from his remarriage um, is kind of the revenge of of his dead wife um, and he locks that creature away and then it comes back as an adult to that punish. Cool. Yeah, it does sound good, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's relatively short. It has a maybe an hour or two maximum oh okay that'd be great easy commitment easy commitment yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> all right i'm adding you um okay and let's see what else we have here we have um i saw paul's uh picture of his fox that does not look like it could yeah. eat you unless you were tied down <laughs> that, that that's that's what my friends were like making this joke oh yeah the fox is gonna it's after you paul this is a tiny, tiny cute little thing yeah. Absolutely cute. 